0: In Luke chapter 8, verse 8, Jesus says, Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, ears that are willing to listen to you. And would our lives be changed by the things that we hear. For Jesus' sake, amen. The story we've just heard has the power to stir up some of our deepest desires. At the center of the story is a quest for a marriage partner. Whether you're seeking a marriage partner yourself, or you're already married, or you're single with no plans to marry, which the Bible treats as a very honorable position, whatever your marital situation might be, Marriage is something we all think about at one time or another, and we think about it in the deepest places of our heart. But Genesis 24 isn't just about courtship. It's also about someone who wants to succeed in a job he's been given. In verse 56, Abraham's servant says, The Lord has prospered my way. God grants success to Abraham's servant in his work, and that will speak to many people's hearts here in manhattan people's identity is closely tied to their work we long for success in our chosen career and so when we see god granting abraham's servant success it catches our eye the story also describes an astonishing example of divine guidance god leads abraham's servant after a journey of 500 miles to precisely the right marriage partner for Isaac. If you've come to church this morning with a big decision hanging over you and you're eager to make the best choice, then the divine guidance on display in this story may have caught your attention. Wealth is another feature of the story. In verse 35, Abraham's servant speaks about his master's flocks and herds and silver and gold. And in verse 53, he gives Rebekah and her brother and mother costly items. That was a juicy financial windfall for Rebecca's family. Don't we all daydream now and again about what we might do if uh, a big sum of money fell in our lap? In brief, this Bible chapter is a hopes and dreams chapter. And it's a chapter where everyone's hopes and dreams seem to be fulfilled. But there's something else in Genesis 24 that means more than anything mentioned so far. God's steadfast love. You can see it in verse 27 where Abraham's servant says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. That is what we all really need. When God's steadfast love fills your heart and your life, the hopes and dreams that would otherwise consume us take their proper place. There's nothing more satisfying than the steadfast love of our creator God. As we'll see from this chapter, it's a love that takes shape in history as God pursues his salvation plan. We're going to divide the chapter into four sections, and the title for the first is The Mission. The Mission. This section runs from verse 1 to verse 9. In verse 1, we're introduced to Abraham's head servant. We're told he's in charge of everything. If you've seen the show Downton Abbey, you'll know how much Lord Grantham depends on Carson the butler everything would fall apart without Carson. Abraham's servant is the Carson of Abraham's household. And yet in verse 4, Abraham sends him on a mission to a land 500 miles away. We can tell immediately that this mission must be supremely important for Abraham. And so it proves to be. The mission is directly related to God's promise to Abraham. Quoted in verse 7, To your offspring I will give this land. That's the short version of the promise. God had told Abraham that his offspring would become a nation. That's why they would need the whole land of Canaan. But as things stand, Abraham's offspring is far from being a nation. There's just his one son, Isaac. Unmarried Isaac. The fulfillment of God's promise hinges on Isaac getting married and having children. The situation is very different in our own period of salvation history. But at this early point on the salvation timeline, things cannot move forward so long as Isaac is alone in the basement playing video games. With that in mind, we can see why Abraham sends his most trusted servant on this long-distance matchmaking mission. Two features of the mission stand out. Abraham makes his servant swear, in verse 3, that he won't take a wife for Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. That's why the servant has to schlep all the way to the region of Mesopotamia where Abraham's relatives are living. God had explained to Abraham that his descendants would eventually take over Canaan, because of the sin of its current inhabitants. That land transfer in the future would be an act of divine judgment against the Canaanites for their wrongdoing. Abraham wisely doesn't want his son to get mixed up with that sinfulness. And so he says the woman must come from his own kindred, his own clan. The other standout feature of the mission is that the servant is told, not to bring Isaac to the woman where she lives. It must be the other way around. See to it that you do not take my son back there, Abraham says in verse 6. And he repeats himself in verse 8. You must not take my son back there. God has tied his purposes to Canaan. Leaving Canaan means stepping outside of God's good purposes as Lot found to his great cost when he left Canaan to live in the Dead Sea region. There are God-given exceptions to that principle, but generally speaking, God's people had to stay in Canaan. Abraham doesn't want his son to go off to Mesopotamia and fall in love with the weather there and the food and the music and the cafe culture and never come back to Canaan. So that's the mission. Find a woman for Isaac to marry. She must be from Abraham's clan, and she must be willing to leave her homeland to come to Canaan. The servant signs up. In verse 9, he solemnly swears to undertake this assignment. Let's move on to section 2, the maiden. The maiden. It's an old-fashioned word, but it is there in our translation in verse 16, and it has the advantage of beginning with the letter M. This section of the passage runs from verse 10 to verse 21. 500 miles later, when the servant has arrived at his destination, he prays to God, and his prayer is where the theme of God's love is introduced. Please look with me down to verses 12 through 14. And he said, O Lord God, of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. We might expect that prayer to end and show steadfast love to me. But instead, the servant asks God to show love to Abraham. God has said that he'll bless the world through Abraham. That means Abraham is like a a tunnel that God's blessing goes through to reach the world, including this servant, Abraham's servant. The servant servant seems to have understood all of that. He's also understood that God's all-important love for Abraham is on the line. Isaac has to find a wife here in Mesopotamia. So in verses 13 and 14, the servant makes a suggestion to God. He knows it's the time of day when the city's young women will be coming out to draw water from the well. And he says to God, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Let her be. Be the one whom you have appointed." The servant trusts that God has already appointed a woman in this town for Isaac. And so he's asking God to manage things so that the appointed woman will be the one who gives him water and offers to water his camels. We need to notice that the servant is setting up a kind of filter the woman who offers to water his camels will need to draw an enormous quantity of water. According to the Encyclopedia of Deserts, a thirsty camel can drink 53 gallons of water. One camel can drink 53 gallons of water. And we're told the servant has 10 camels. So Abraham's servant may not be expecting the very first woman who comes to the well to offer to do that massively strenuous camel-watering work. He may be expecting that out of a dozen or or more women, there'll be just one who makes that particular offer. So his prayer is a filter. He's asking for the camel-watering woman to be the one God has appointed for Isaac. By the way, it's very hard to think of times when we ourselves should set up this kind of precise condition for God to fulfill. Abraham's servant has good grounds for doing so because he's in the middle of a critical moment of salvation history. We're not. God's salvation plan isn't on the line for us in the way that it was on that day in Mesopotamia. As it turns out, the first woman who comes out of the city with her water water jar is the one who offers to water those ten camels. The reader knows her identity before Abraham's servant. We find out in advance, thanks to verse 15, that God has answered the servant's prayer. The camel-watering woman is Rebecca. She's unmarried and she belongs to Abraham's clan. She's the ideal match for Isaac. But Abraham's servant doesn't yet know any of that. All he knows is that this as yet unidentified woman is willing to carry water from the well to the camel's trough over and over and over again. Verse 21 says the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Has God answered his prayer? Will God continue to show steadfast love to Abraham and through Abraham to the world? Well, that brings us to the next section of the chapter, the meeting. The meeting. This section runs from verse 22 all the way to verse 58. First, Abraham's servant and Rebekah introduce themselves to each other, and then Abraham's servant meets Rebekah's family. Imagine the servant's joy when he hears Rebekah say the words of verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Melchah, whom she bore to Nahor. The servant knows his master's family tree. He knows Nahor is Abraham's brother. This camel-watering woman is from Abraham's clan. God has heard his prayer. Hallelujah. Look at his reaction in verses 26 and 27. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Those words of praise in verse 27 show us what's going on in the servant's heart. He could have missed out the middle section. He could have simply said, Blessed be the Lord who has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. That's what we might expect someone in his position to say. But before he gives thanks for his personal success, he gives thanks for something else. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. The servant understands the significance of God's ongoing love for Abraham. Abraham is the human tunnel God's blessing has to go through, his eternal blessing for the world. The provision of a marriage partner for Isaac shows that God's plan to bless the world is still on track. That's why the servant praises God for loving Abraham before giving thanks for his own personal success. The really big thing happening here is the demonstration of God's ongoing love for Abraham. But all is not yet settled. Rebecca's family has to get on board with the idea. Rebecca herself has to get on board with the idea. She runs back to her family to tell them who she's met at the well and to show them the 10 shekel gold bracelets and the half shekel gold ring she's been given. Suitably impressed, Rebecca's brother Laban runs to the well to invite the man to come to the family home. In verse 33, food is set down in front of him, but he refuses to take a bite until he's told them his story. He finishes with this challenge to Rebecca's family in verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, if you're on board with God's plan, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. That's rather a stern challenge, isn't it? I wonder if it brings to mind anything we've heard from earlier in Genesis. Back in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse That blessing or curse feature of God's promises to Abraham may well be on the mind of Abraham's servant here. Will these Mesopotamian relatives bless Abraham and receive blessing from God as a result? Or will they dishonor Abraham by refusing to let Rebekah marry Abraham's son? The answer comes quickly. In verses 50 and 51, Rebekah's brother Laban and her father Bethuel both agree, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. They've now blessed Abraham by giving their approval to the marriage, and so we expect them to be blessed. There is a measure of blessing right away. The servant gives Rebecca's family silver and gold, jewellery and garments and costly ornaments. But God's blessing doesn't stop there. In the decades that follow, Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel, gain an honoured place among God's people, a place they would never have had if the family had said no to Abraham's servant at this point. God was true to his promise. He blessed Rebekah's family because they blessed Abraham. And yet all is still not finally settled. After a feast and a night's sleep, the servant wants to get moving. He says in verse 54, send me away to my master but he meets with some resistance. In verse 55, Laban and Milcah reply, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Why not give Rebekah time to say some goodbyes to local friends? But Abraham's servant knows that if they don't get away quickly, they might not get away at all. Rebecca's family could change their tune potentially, still agreeing to the marriage perhaps, but asking for Isaac to come and visit first. The servant still has Abraham's instructions ringing in his ears, you must not take my son back there. So the servant insists in verse 56, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Rebekah is then consulted. And she decides to go. It's time for us to move on to the final section of the passage. Verses 59 to the end. The title for this section is The Message. The message. The end of the story is very romantic. Isaac, who's still grieving the loss of his mother Sarah, goes out to meditate by himself. He looks up and sees camels approaching. Then the writer of Genesis switches to Rebecca's point of view. She sees a man walking toward the camels and asks the servant with her, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant replies, It is my master. Rebecca covers her face with a veil in accordance with the customs of the time. And then, according to verse 66, the servant tells Isaac everything that has happened. Isaac must have recognized the divine fingerprints all over the story of the servant's encounter with Rebekah. Verse 67 says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. With all of that delightful romance in the air, it's easy to overlook the send off that Rebecca is given in verse 60. But the send off mustn't be overlooked. It is integral to the message of the whole chapter. Please look down with me to verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Rightly understood, those words speak of a bigger love story than the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. And that bigger love story is an even longer distance love story than Isaac and Rebecca's. Before the creation of the world, God lovingly planned to send us a saviour. The saviour has been promised in Genesis ever since chapter 3, verse 15. According to that verse, he'll crush the serpent, which means he'll overcome the devil. And so he'll overcome temptation and sin and death. By Genesis 24, our passage today, it's clear this saviour will be one of Abraham's offspring. And in those words said over Rebecca, as she leaves her homeland to marry Isaac, the promised Saviour comes into view. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. There's a narrowing from thousands of ten thousands down to just one person in the final line the gate of those who hate him. God will bless the world because one of Abraham's descendants will possess the gate of those who hate him. Fast forward to the New Testament and we hear Jesus say in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus conquered his enemies through his death on the cross, by receiving God's punishment for sin in the place of everyone who trusts in him, Jesus frees us from the power of those enemies. If you're listening today as someone who's not yet trusting in Jesus, please put your life in his hands today so that you can rejoice alongside him in his victory. The testimony of the Bible is that those who don't trust in Jesus belong to the same side as his enemies and face the same eternal defeat as them. Come to Jesus, if you haven't done so already, and rejoice with him in his victory. Share in that victory. For those of us already trusting in Jesus, verse 60 reminds us of God's long-distance love for us. As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. In his great love, before the creation of the world, God prepared a rescue for us. He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, to be our saviour. At the time of the matchmaking in Genesis 24, God's love was seen in his faithfulness to Abraham. Remember those worshipful words of the servant in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. But in our time, God's love is seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1 This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light. Through the gospel. Just as children flourish when they are confident of their parents' love for them, we need to be confident of God's love for us. And when we see the long-distance planning that went into the cross, we see the strength of God's love for us, the strength of his desire to have us with him forever. God showed his steadfast love for Abraham by providing Rebekah for Abraham's son Isaac. And in that marriage, which would ultimately lead to the birth of Jesus, we also see God's steadfast love for us, his long-distance love for us. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you, Father, for the love in your heart for us before the beginning of time, before the creation of the world. Thank you for the salvation plan you set in motion thank you for bringing that plan through this critical point when isaac needed a wife we praise you father for overseeing your salvation plan and fulfilling all your promises we thank you for the sacrifice of your son jesus that we're about to remember as we take communion. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would keep us confident of your love for us. Through Jesus. Amen.